Welcome to the podcast of Unity Fort Worth. In it, you'll hear this week's message and meditation. If you'd like to hear and see the complete service, you can always find it at unityfortworth.org or on the Unity Fort Worth Facebook page. Unity Fort Worth focuses on positive and practical Christianity with a willingness to explore the entire world of religion and spiritual thought. Unity Fort Worth streams live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Thanks for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. So now it's a great pleasure for me to introduce to you uh, Cantor Sherry Allen. Um, and Cantor Sherry Allen and I, we met in the circle of clergy. We both serve on this uh, steering committee. And so that's how we made the connection. And I felt it would be such a, a great thing for us to have her speak and show a little bit more of the Jewish tradition to us. As Cantor Allen serves as the spiritual leader to the congregation Beth Shalom in Arlington. And she lives in Fort Worth, however, with her husband, uh, Richard, uh, who is a professor at CTU. Uh, lots of film and digital media stuff he does, and he has three fully grown children. That's what it says here. So are they fully grown? Yeah, they look okay. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, she's a member of several organizations. Uh, among uh, one of them is Cantor's Assembly, an international association of Cantors affiliated with the conservative Judaism, and also the Texas chapter of the Religious Action Center of Reformed Judaism, or RAC, uh, the Inclusive Faith Coalition, uh, a group of LBGTQ plus affirming clergy, and as I said, the Circle of Clergy, which focuses on racial justice concerns in our community. On these organizations, Cantor Allen serves in various capacities, such as the Ethics Committee for the Cantor's Assembly and the Steering Committee of the Circle of Clergy. As an ally of LGBTQ plus rights, she's also a member of the Transgender Rights Leadership Committee of the RAC, and she has been a guest panelist for the Texas Freedom Networks, Countering Hate in the Transgender Community, program and participated in um, the uh, symposium Out for Health. And she previously served as the board president of Care and Prepare, a nonprofit organization that addresses end-of-life issues, where she also served as a panelist on their program, Spiritual Care for LGBTQ Palliative and Hospice Patients. So... Please join with me. Uh, this is quite a resume, isn't it? Please join with me, Cantor Sherry Allen, for her message. Thank you so much. Just make sure. How do I get to the. Let's position. Let's position this over here. There okay, you go. Thanks. There we go. Yep. All right. Okay. Once again, good morning, everyone. I'm so used to saying Shabbat Shalom, but it's <laughs> 24 hours past that. We Jews like to tell stories, and we're pretty good at it. We can arguably say that the Exodus, the story of our birth as a nation, is the greatest story ever told. There's intrigue. Betrayal, 
Miracle, suspense, and tons of family drama. This story guides every moral and ethical decision we make. Basically, the answer to every question about why we do anything that benefits humanity is because we were slaves in the land of Egypt. The Exodus story, whether or not it really happened the way we say it did, is part of our DNA. The first chapter in the book of Exodus, we call it Shemot, the Hebrew a word for numbers, sets the foreboding tone as early as verse 8 when a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It's basically downhill from there for the Israelites who quickly are demoted to slave status and forced to build pyramids for Pharaoh and things keep getting worse. Pharaoh gives the order to kill all baby boys at birth. Moses escapes that fate due to his savvy sister Miriam. And the Torah then skips Moses' growing up years and zeroes in on the dramatic moment when he kills an Egyptian taskmaster, hightails it out of Egypt to Midian, marries Zipporah, gains a super nice father-in-law, Yitro, and settles into his new job as shepherd. Things are pretty uneventful until he happens upon a burning bush that isn't actually burning up and has his first holy encounter with God who gives him a new job assignment leading the Israelites out of Egypt. It's a tough job, and someone has to do it, but Moses would rather it not be him. But God is rather insistent, and before he knows it, he's headed back to Egypt with family in tow, has an emotional reunion with his brother Aaron, meets with Pharaoh, who responds to Moses' request to let his people go by deciding to make them work harder instead which, of course, doesn't sit well with the Israelites or God. Ten plagues follow before Pharaoh finally relents and even asks for a blessing before they go, and the story culminates with a miracle at the sea. The specific commandment to remember this pivotal moment in our history is first mentioned in Exodus chapter 12, which is supposed to be... Oh, there it is! There it is. It's a miracle. So, again, I wanted you to have the visual, but this is what we read out of Exodus, the Torah. I'm not going to read the whole thing in Hebrew, but I will go over it in English because this really is the setting for the holiday that we are about to celebrate. Adonai said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you. We actually read this very verse yesterday at Shabbat services. Why? Because yesterday was Shabbat Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the new month of the Hebrew month of Nisan. So today is actually Nisan 2, which is the month that Passover happens in. Speak to the community leadership of Israel and say that on the 10th of this month, each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household, You shall, and again, I'm I'm skipping verses here. I'm just kind of giving you an overview. You shall keep watch over it until the 14th day of this month, and and again, of Nisan. And all the assembled congregation of the Israelites shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in any way with water, but roasted, head, legs, and entrails over the fire. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. If any of it is left until morning, you shall burn it. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, 
I'm still quite not sure what girded loins actually refers to, but, you know. Um, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. In other words, you're ready to just eat and run. And this is the important passage here. Pesach hu Ladonai. It is a Passover offering to Adonai. And then it's called another name. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Ushmartem et hamatzot. The Festival of Unleavened Bread. So here we're having, we have a different name for uh, what we think of as the same holiday. For on this very day I brought you rank, your ranks out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout the ages as an institution for all time. That's our commandment to observe this holiday. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, that's actually a week from Friday night at sundown, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. No leaven, anything that rises or has been encountered with a leavening agent uh, for more than 18 minutes, uh, no leaven shall be found in your houses for seven days. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person, whether a stranger or a citizen of the country, shall be cut off from the community of Israel. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your settlements. You shall eat unleavened bread. And that's our commandment to eat matzah, which you should be seeing now stocked on the shelves of every major grocery store in this city. And we eat it all week long. Not only that, we eat any, we, we're, not, we're not allowed to have anything in our kitchens or our homes that have leavened in it. So we have to get rid of all of our bread, pasta, cookies, cereal, basically everything in the house, and replace it with food that is strictly kosher for Passover, as stated on the box. So it's a kind of an expensive holiday as well. We also have to clean the house top to bottom literally getting rid of every crumb that could be in every nook and cranny. You've never really cleaned until you've been on the floor of your kitchen with a toothbrush in your hand scrubbing baseboards. I look forward to it every year. Oh, so much. <laughs> then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go pick out lambs for your family, slaughter the Passover offering, and then take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and apply some of that blood that is in it to the lintel and to the, door, uh, the two doorposts. None of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning, for Adonai, when going through to smite the Egyptians, will see the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, and Adonai will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter and smite your home. You shall, again, the repetition, you shall observe this as an institution for all time for you and for your descendants. And then here's another important directive in the last directive here in this passage. And when you enter the land, that Adonai will give you as promised, you shall observe this right. Verse 26. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this right? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to Adonai who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when smiting the Egyptians but saved our houses. Those assembled then bowed low in homage, and the Israelites went and did so, just as Adonai had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. There you have it. All in all, the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, 415 verses, is devoted, and this is just a portion of it, to telling in dramatic fashion this amazing, breathtaking saga 
We read out of the Torah scroll on Shabbat over the course of approximately five weeks. That's how long it takes to read all of these things. But we also retell this story every year on the holiday of Passover at our homes with our families, fingers crossed this year, after two years of just doing it on, doing it on Zoom, during an elaborate meal known as the Passover Seder. This year, the Seder begins at sundown on Friday, April 15th, and then we have usually two Seders, so we have another one Saturday, April 16th. The word Seder means order, and we follow the order of the Seder out of a book called the Haggadah, or the Telling. The development of the Haggadah, as we now know it, is a fascinating story itself, and that's what I'm excited to share with you in, during the next few minutes. It might surprise you to know that there is no mandate for us to have what we consider to be an authentic Seder experience, i.e. a condensed yet still hours-long retelling of these 15 chapters followed by a sumptuous meal, utilizing every form of matzah product that currently exists, followed by more prayers that we struggle to say while fighting the urge to pass out at the table. (laughs) After all, the first Seder, which wasn't really a Seder at all, but more of a quick fast food affair of roasted lamb, maror, and matzah. That's all it was, really. And our Seder today is also a far cry from how the Israelites used to celebrate it back in temple times. Back then, it all revolved around sharing a meal. The Israelites would bring their slaughtered lambs, as it said in our, in our text, to the temple altar, and the Kohanim, the priests, would perform the sacrificial ritual. The people would sing psalms of hallel, of praise with the priests, after which the people would head home and eat meat together with matzah and bitter herbs. That was it. No Haggadah needed. But everything changed when the second temple was destroyed. Suddenly, there was no communal place to perform this ritual. And without the Pesach sacrifice... The Israelites were left high and dry as a roasted shank bone. The rabbis, resourceful and determined as they were, basically saved Judaism by repurposing it. Professor Malka Zimkovich comments, the shift from sacrificing the Paschal lamb to the Seder with its rituals of matzah, maror, four cups of wine, the recitation of the Hallel, and the telling of the Exodus story reflects a fundamental adjustment regarding what the night is about, unquote. During temple times, it was about literally recreating our story through the action of animal sacrifice. Post-temple, it was about keeping that experience, the communal memory, alive through the act of storytelling. And again, that commandment that we read a little earlier ago, you have to tell this to your children for all the generations that come after you. But the directions for how we were to tell the story are surprisingly vague. Exodus 12, 26 And uh, 26 verse 7 says, And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this rite? You shall say, it is the Zevach Pesach, the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, because God passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when God smote the Egyptians but saved our houses. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, it is because of that which God did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. Now that just about sums it up. So why not just recite those verses, and head straight for the matzo ball soup. Our ancient rabbis seemingly had bigger plans and set their sights on creating an interactive and meaningful experience we and our future offspring would never forget. So how did they do it? 
The rabbis also might have intuited that if the Seder was billed as a marathon retelling of a 15-chapter saga before dinner was even served, there might be less than enthusiastic response. So they boiled the story down to these four verses, Deuteronomy 5 through 8. Aramio Veravi, my father was a wandering Aramean, and with just a few people he went down to meet Ryan and sojourn there. And there he became a great nation, mighty and numerous. The Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us, and they imposed hard labor upon us. We cried out to Adonai, the god of our ancestors, and Adonai heard our plea and saw our affliction, our misery, and our oppression. Then Adonai took us out of Mitzrayim with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with awesome power, with signs, and with wonders. There you have it. That's the one paragraph summary our traditional Haggadah provides. The rest, as they say, is commentary. Literally. The bulk of the Haggadah, the traditional Haggadah, takes each one of those four verses, breaks them down into phrases, and analyzes each phrase with proof texts found in different books in the Torah. Wow. 415 verses whittled down to four. I call that a masterful editing job. Now, when I was growing up, Okay, even after I was grown up, this verse-by-verse commentary was not exactly the focus of our Seder. It's all very scholarly stuff, but how can I put it? Less than exciting. The rabbis must have sensed that in order to motivate guests, especially children, to stay put at the meal, they needed to add some interesting elements to the mix, including much singing, munching, and a centerpiece otherwise known as a Seder plate with symbolic foods including a zeroa, a shank bone, which represents the korban pesach, that sacrifice, the beitzah, the roasted egg, which also uh, represents another sacrifice called the korban chagigah, and then we also add the karpas, a spring vegetable dipped in salt water, haroset, which is like an apple wine and nuts mixture, which symbolizes the mortar that the, between the bricks that the Israelites built for the pharaoh um, when he was building the pyramids, maror, bitter herbs dipped into the haroset to lessen the bitter taste, and hazeret, a romaine lettuce, which is an additional bitter herb to be used for a Hillel sandwich, supposedly a, a substitute for the lamb, matzah, and maror sandwich that they ate back in temple times. Other items that we have on the table besides the Seder plate, three matzot, unleavened bread, and four cups of wine. The order of the Seder actually consists of 15 different steps. Kadesh, making the prayer for the wine, hand washing, the dipping of the karpas, the the green vegetable in in salt water, breaking the middle matzah, hiding what's called the afikoman, the dessert, but really just the matzah that we have to close out the whole meal at the end, which symbolizes, by the way, matzah symbolizes the bread of affliction. A poor person ate crumbs, ate dried, you know, dried bread rather than whole loaves. So this matzah is the bread of affliction, but it also transforms into the bread of our freedom. It's what we ate when we were on their way to Eretz Israel. We hide it to keep the kids interested because at the end they find they have gone on this treasure hunt and they find it, and whoever finds it gets some sort of a prize. Then we tell the Magid, the story of our exodus, with the Manishtana, the four questions. Manishtana halayla hazemiko Why is this night different than every other night? And we go on to pose four questions. 
we also have the four children, the wise, the wicked, the simple, and the one who doesn't know how to ask at all, and they ask different questions about why we celebrate. So many questions. We're supposed to ask tons and tons of questions, again, to keep the children and everyone else at the table occupied and interested, and to also delve deeper into the story. We also recite ten plagues, the ten plagues that uh, basically symbolize the cutting down one by one of the, of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. You know, the, the frogs that were in the blood in the Nile River that represented the god of the Nile. Um, the cattle, the darkness, um, darkness, which basically, you know, kind of diffused the whole power of the sun god Ra. And then, however, so we have, we have blood, frogs, lice, beasts, cattle disease, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then Makat Beharot, the plague of the firstborn, which is what really motivated Pharaoh to finally let the Israelites leave. We recite each one in Hebrew, and as we do, we take our finger or a, some kind of utensil and take a drop of wine out of our cup as we recite each plague to diminish our joy because we know and we acknowledge that innocent people, innocent Egyptians also suffered. So we also diminish our joy as well. We actually, after that, we sing a song called Dayenu. It would have been enough for us. This is the thing that we remember most about our Seder. My father singing, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, die, you know. If only God had just brought us out of Egypt, it would have been enough for us. But God did more. If only God had just given us the Sabbath, that would have been enough. But God did more, and so on. We also have the symbolic hand washing. We sing some songs of Hallel, and then we do eat. We cannot eat. We cannot actually. The Seder isn't even authentic unless we mention those three items mentioned in our in our reading: Pesach, the lamb, the the um, the sacrificial lamb, the matzah, and the maror. And we make a sandwich of those things, although we don't eat the lamb anymore because we don't sacrifice the lamb because there is no place to sacrifice that in Jerusalem anymore. So we just eat a sandwich of matzah and maror. Uh, we say blessings over the matzah. We dip the maror in the haroset to sweeten that bitter taste. We have that korak, that mat matzah and more sandwich. And then finally, we have the meal. Um, after we have the meal, we do some more singing. The afikoman is found. It's shared. We do blessings after the meal. And finally, the Seder is over, usually around midnight or so. And then we do it all again the next day. So how did all these components come together? Rabbi Professor David Galinkin explains it in his article aptly titled, The Origins of the Seder. And it's all Greek to me. I mean, seriously, it's, it's all Greek to me because referencing a seminal paper authored by Siegfried Stein, Galinkin states, Stein proved in a very convincing fashion that many of the Seder rituals and literary forms found in Mishnah and Tosefta rabbinic commentary uh, were borrowed from the Hellenistic banquet or symposium. So he borrowed some of these traditions from the Greeks. These symposiums were basically dinner parties where men gathered to talk about intellectual, philosophical, and religious subjects while sharing copious amounts of wine. And here are, again, a few of these samples. So uh, we are all supposed to eat reclining because, again, we are all free tonight and free men recline and free women and free, you know, every gender, you know, identity on the spectrum. We all recline, right? 
And this is, you know, basically he draws this parallel between, um, in Homer's time, men still feasted sitting, but gradually they slid from chairs to couches, taking as their ally relaxation and ease. So we adopt that in our Passover days. We're all supposed to have pillows under, under us. All those cups of wine that I mentioned, the four cups of wine, the Greeks, too, drank many cups of wine at the symposium. And Tiffany's in the 4th century BCE said that one should honor the gods to the extent of three cups of wine. We had four. The washing of the hands. The servant poured water over the hands of those reclining at a Jewish banquet. The, the Hebrew term is actually... Um, they picked up and poured water on their hands. And again, uh, it is said that this is a translation of a Greek idiom, which means to take water on the hands. So they did this hand-washing thing too. And then the Hillel sandwich, that sandwich of matzah maror and, uh, and bitter herbs. According to the Talmud again and to the Haggadah, Hillel the elder used to eat this sandwich. And similarly, the Greeks and Romans used to eat sandwich with bread and lettuce. So dishes such as chazeret, lettuce, which we use as bitter herbs, and haroset were also served at these Greek gatherings. And the questions that we ask at the Seder might have been modeled after the questions posed at these symposiums, although the questions were centered on the food itself, such as are sorts, different sorts of food more easily digestible, or does the sea or the land afford better food, or uh, you know that, that kind of thing. Symposiums sometimes lasted till dawn. Quote, the crowing of the cock reminds the guests to go home. So I guess we have the Greeks to thank for giving us at least an outline for our Haggadah. But we Jews have really been historically savvy at repurposing the rituals of those among whom we lived to enhance our own celebrations and observances. We've taken what we've observed from other cultures, adapted it in a meaningful way, and made it part of our own tradition. Speaking of other cultures and religions, I've heard Penny ask the question, was Jesus' Last Supper a Passover Seder? The short answer is technically no. Did he have a Passover meal? Yes, sure he did. One consisting of lamb, matzah, and moror, no doubt, as it is commanded to in our text that we read. But the Seder, as we have come to know it and how I've just described it to you, is a post-second century event developed over hundreds of years. Back in Jesus' time, there simply was no Haggadah or four cups of wine or Seder place or hide-and-seek with the Afikomen. And the Haggadah keeps evolving. Uh, we have some examples of some of the different books that are now on the market. There are hundreds of them, but among the most... This, this is the one that I, that I grew up with, the, Passover, the traditional Passover Haggadah uh, by Maxwell House. We used to, and in fact, uh, Tom Thumb, I think, still has these. If you go to Tom Thumb in the next week, the one on Hewlin, and you see like next to their boxes of matzah, they're probably going to have a stack of those for those that don't have. I've got a traditional sort of kind of not, you know, real exciting Haggadah, but that's what we grew up with. Then there's also some other ones, too. This one, which we've used from Truah, the rabbinic, um, I, I belong to this group, um, the rabbinic call for human rights. They have um, this Haggadah called The Other Side of the River, The Other Side of the Sea, which basically kind of reframes some of these issues about freedom in terms of what is going on today for people who are not free. 
Um, we have the Reform Movement's new Passover Haggadah, again, which has new translations of some of the, of the Hebrew, and it's, it's actually very beautiful. I cut and paste, and I, you know, I, I use from that, too. And then another one called Promise of the Land, which is a Haggadah that's based on ecology and relates a lot of the passages in the Haggadah to ecological or climate change, things like that. So those are just a few of them. We also have the LGBTQ Passover Haggadah, which includes a coconut on the Seder plate, not a lamb bone, to represent those who have the courage to come out of their shell. We have an eco-sater from Juicy.com, which suggests plan on talking about freedom from oil dependency and about the benefits of leading a greener life. You can list 10 plagues of waste, four sons who react differently to global warming, and four questions about how we can change our individual and collective behavior in the future. We have a vegetarian Haggadah for animal lovers, appropriately named Haggadah for the liberated lamb. <laughs> we have a Haggadah for Jews and Buddhists and even a J-date Haggadah, the Jewish dating service. So as way out there as some of these ideas seem, if it brings those who might not have any connection to the holiday literally back to the table, then that's a start. At the Allen home, I've created our own Haggadah with readings that cover important social justice and equality issues. I update it every year, and um, they're all relevant to the Pesach theme of freedom. A lot to, lot to unpack this year on that. Our seders, in conclusion, our seders are meaningful for a number of reasons. Celebrating with family, reconnecting with our ancestral history, and reminding us about why we are here to help rescue, in whatever way we are able, others who need us, just as we were rescued thousands of years ago. So we keep telling our stories a lot. And perhaps by adding to this ancient narrative and creating our personal Haggadot, we might be newly inspired to take action against the plagues and injustices that we confront in the here and now. And if we can make that truly happen, Dayeno, it will be enough for us, at least until next year. Thank you. Do we have any time for questions or no? Nope. Okay. It, it, well, I, you know, again, I, I'm not quite sure how many. I think I've gone over, but um, I don't know. the one question. Okay. Does anyone have one super great question? <laughs> Actually, all questions are super great, so. Yes. Yes. Oh, gosh. Those sages of ours, they had loopholes for everything. Jerry, can you repeat the question? Yeah, I'm sorry, yes. The question was, when we take all of our leavened foods out of our house, and I, we pack them up and we put them, you know, you know, we try to finish it, we try to eat it all, but obviously we can't do that, all of it. So we, we pack it up, put it like in a storage closet, and our refrigerated and, and stuff that we, that's perishable, we try to finish off that too, and if we can't, we just have to, you know, toss that or give it to someone else. But there's a loophole. There, we sell... And it's actually a, a contract. It's an actual legal contract. We sell our hametz, it's called, to someone who is not Jewish. So technically, even though maybe it's in our homes or somewhere stored away, it's not ours for the week. So we don't own it. <laughs> they own it. And then we buy it back after the holiday's over. So we put it back. I'm telling you, these rabbis, that you know, they must have been very OCD. They had so much these details on their mind. But yeah, that's how we do it. So we don't waste too many things. Yes. 
All right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm happy after the service is over. If anyone has any other questions, um, I'm happy to answer them for you. Um, it's definitely the most, uh, the most wonderful and exhausting time of year for me ever. So, um, so thank you for listening. And uh, I'm going to now continue with the meditation, which I am going to teach all of you today as kind of a chant song. We call uh, a nigun is a song without words. We're going to begin with a nigun, we're going to begin with a melody, and then we're going to turn it into words. And the only words that you have to know are these. Olam, can you repeat that? Olam. Chesed. Chesed. Yibane. Very good. Olam is the world. Chesed is love or loving kindness. And bane is... Um, Yibane is to build. So it means we will build a world of love together. And the melody goes like this. La 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 Let's try that together. La 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 And here's the next part. La 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 Let's do that all together now from the top. La 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 Chesed Yibane La 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 Olam Chesed Yibane La 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 build this world from love I will build this world from love la 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 and you must build this world from love and you must build this world from love 
And if we build this world from love, and if we build this world from love, then God will build this world from love. God will build this world from love. Thank you for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. You just heard this week's message and meditation. For the live streams and more information, go to unityfortworth.org.